Well, I mean, in the early days, it was easy because, you know, we we didn't, you know, we weren't close to hitting our minimum. So in the early days, you know, the more volume, the better. You know, there were times in the business when certainly not now. Now we can keep us up with as much demand as there is. But there was a time in uh, the business when I had, you know, requests for orders from Walmart and request for for orders from Costco and I couldn't do both I just couldn't do both and so I remember I had to turn Costco down and that was really hard but you know sometimes as an entrepreneur you know our by our very nature we're yes people yes I can do it yes I can get it there yes it can be done um, so, you know, no is not a, a, a popular word in our vocabulary, it certainly wasn't in mine, but, you know, I had a reputation to think about and, you know, the worst thing you can do for your customers is make a promise you can't keep. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to our newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Gail Becker, the founder of Cauliflower, the most disruptive company in the better for you frozen food space and named as one of the top 10 world's most innovative food companies in 2022 by Fast Company. Hypergrowth Company reached more than $100 million in revenue in five years under her leadership as CEO. We discussed how and why she left corporate America to start Cauliflower, her approach to growth through retail, how she thought about fundraising and managing her cap table, and what capital efficiency means to her and product expansion. Without further ado, here's Gail. Gail, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. This should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I like fun. <laughs> I wanted to start from the very beginning. So you were this PR executive. Okay. You were working in corporate America. I know you were. In, I know that you were inspired by your kids. I was. They have celiac disease, and um, you were looking at um, different food options for them. But taking the leap and founding a company—that's quite—that's um, quite the leap. Um, so. What kind of went into actually going you to, to actually make that decision and as well as experimenting as well with with cauliflower? Yeah. So to be perfectly honest, it's such an interesting uh, phrase that you use. I don't know that I was inspired by my kids. I certainly got the idea from my kids, but I suppose in many ways I was inspired by helping other people like me. And I think that that really is such a calling for so many entrepreneurs. As you say, I was, you know, in corporate America, relatively happy, you know, climb the top of the corporate ladder, all that good stuff. But I felt unfulfilled. And when my father passed away, I also felt like I needed something more meaningful. I really needed to help people. I needed to do something that was, you know, going to impact people's lives in, in some tiny but positive way. And, um, and, but I didn't know how, I didn't know what that third missing piece would be. Uh, and, you know, as the mom of two boys with celiac disease, 
I grew very frustrated by what I saw the industry was putting in gluten-free food, more fat, sugar, salt, and calories, and less nutrients. And I, I guess like probably many people you have on the show, I sort of thought, well, someone's going to do something about this, uh, but no one ever did. And so um, I stumbled across cauliflower crust pizza one, one day on the internet. There were lots of recipes on how to make it online. And um, I, I made one and it was okay, but it took a ridiculous amount of time, 90 minutes after a full day of work to be precise. And so I put all of those things together, right? My, my frustration with corporate life, the the passing of my father and the realization that I wanted to honor him in some way because he he was an entrepreneur and this realization that I can't be the only one that thinks 90 minutes is a ridiculous amount of time to make a pizza crust so I put all of those things together and what I came out with was I know I'm going to leave my job and start a company called Collie Power and that's what I did in May of 2016. That's unbelievable. At what point, I, I know it's it, you were kind of sick and tired, it seems, of your job, corporate America, um, wanted to solve this problem that you sure that you felt other people were experiencing, taking 90 minutes to actually create a cauliflower pizza. But at what point did you did you start from scratch and just say, I'm going all in from the very beginning? Or did you did you already have like a product in market that you were kind of working on on the side? What was that like? Well, I'm embarrassed to answer the question because just by the way that you asked it made me made it feel like maybe I should have uh, had a, done a little bit more prior. Uh, no, <laughs> um, you know, I um, I didn't have any food experience, so I didn't other than I cooked a bought it and ate it. So certainly had nothing else in market. I just made dinner and lunches like everybody else. Um, I think the decision to sort of go big or go home, honestly had a little bit to do with my age, that uh, I was a little bit of an older entrepreneur. And, you know, I realized, boy, I should have done something like this probably several times over my life, but I didn't. So if I waited this long, uh, I better go all in. And that's ostensibly what I did. I didn't, you know, there are lots of companies, you know, particularly lots of food companies that sort of start small, um, you know, create a product, sell it in the farmer's market, sell it to their friends, go online, blah, blah. That's a great way to start a business in, in the food space. It wasn't my way. I just decided, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go big. Um, and um, yeah, so I just went right to manufacturing. So once you took the first leap, I mean, I, I mean, that first step, manufacturing, talk to me a little bit about since you didn't have any experience in the food, in the food business, what was that like? finding the right partner and, and also building the brand from scratch? It was horrible. Uh, I had to kiss a lot of frogs and princes and however that goes. Um, because most people, honestly, and this is, you know, this is sort of that catch 22 with a lot of, you know, newly minted entrepreneurs is that, you know, no one wanted to take me on. They either thought, well, this woman doesn't know anything um, about the food industry, or you can't make a crust out of cauliflower, 
or um, your volume's not big enough for us and we just don't have the room. And so basically I met a lot of potential manufacturers who gave me all, sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes all three of those answers. And, you know, there wasn't a lot to choose from because gluten-free pizza manufacturing, uh, frozen pizza manufacturing, um, then and and even still now is relatively limited particularly when you're talking about that small of a of a run so um you know it was really hard to find someone who would take a bet on me and you know i did hire a consultant to help me find these manufacturers because clearly i didn't know how um and that was really and i was a sponge and i i still am a sponge and i i um I just listened and, and learned and asked a lot of questions and, you know, finally got to a, a point where we could make it. Also, how much money did you, um, since you kind of went all in from the beginning, how much money do you kind of set aside in order for Kali Power? And what did you feel like maybe your first benchmark was or, or was going to be? Well, certainly not enough. Uh, <laughs> how much money? Not enough. Uh, ask any founder that and uh, they he or she will answer the same. Um, I will say that, um, I, I did use, I did self-fund for the first year. Uh, I, you know, just like everything you hear and read, I, 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 I took my own savings, a lot of my own savings, um, some money that I had, you know, received from my father, um, who only had a small business. He didn't have a, a large business, but he, he, he was certainly was an entrepreneur and came here with nothing. Um, maxed out my credit cards, really like gave my life an overhaul and, um, you know, really struggled in, in, in the beginning. But, you know, in, in, in some ways, those were really, you know, great times too, because, um, boy, to go all in and on something, you know, mind, body, spirit, bank account, that's quite a feeling. And um, I, 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 I love those times, ironically, I really did. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, it, it's different now. But um, I guess, you know, I, so I started the company in May of 2016. And the money lasted me until mm, August, September of 2017. So I just made it last as long as I could. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can only imagine what that feels like going all in from the get-go. I mean, kudos to you. And obviously, it's, it's, it's worked out. Well, it all sounds very smart now, but at the time, it was pretty stupid. Let's be honest. You know, uh, I, <laughs> I don't think anyone thought it was a good idea back then, but... You know, uh, probably like a lot of people that you interview, it's almost like a calling, you know, it's just something I knew I had to do. I can't explain it, um, but it was just this, something was pushing me, something was pulling me, something was telling me. And, and really for the first time in my life, I decided to listen. How, how did you approach from the beginning? Um, um, obviously you, you find the right manufacturer through your consultant. How did you also approach sales channels from the beginning? Was it first D to C or, 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 or were you able to go to farmer's markets or what was kind of that in terms of the actual sales side? Yeah. Well, so farmer's market is just not scalable. I mean, that's, that's like great for some people, but I was going straight to manufacturing. I was definitely going, uh, all in for retail. 
Um, D to C is also very hard when you're talking about frozen. It's not really an option. I was in Amazon in the early days and, you know, certainly you could still get us there today, but the cost of frozen shipping is so high that it's just, it's much, much easier and cheaper to buy it in stores. Um, and so my, my goal was to, you know, achieve distribution and mass distribution as quickly as I could and really take advantage of my first to market position. And, you know, I think that um, when you start a company to, when you have a mission, when you really do want to help people, you know, which was the reason I started Kali Power, my goal, my mission was to make, you know, better, more nutritious food accessible to all. And in order for me to do that, that meant I had to be available in a, you know, really in every category of retail, whether it was natural or specialty or mass or, you know, um, grocery. And so that's what I did. And I did that as quickly as I could. What was the first channel or the first kind of win? Was it targeting first, like the, like the, uh, the natural channel and, um, and whichever channel it was, how were you able to actually get into the first uh, retailer I was in was um, 30 Whole Foods stores. So Whole Foods has this program where you can uh, pitch the region that you live in. So uh, I lived um, at the, in the SOPAC region, which was Los Angeles and a few other uh, regional um, cities. And so I just submitted I, I I took my very 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 expensive four samples of pizza and uh, you know brought them in uh, in a in a styrofoam crate to the regional office of Whole Foods they didn't even let me meet anybody and um, you know about a week later I got a note from the buyer that they really liked it and they're gonna bring them in um, to those 30 stores and that was like you know that was a moment that was a that was a like, cause up until that point, you really, it's just a bet. I spent all of that time, all of that money, you don't know. So I could have made this, you know, fantastic product, or maybe, you know, I could have made a not so fantastic product and no one might've brought it in. But so when the, when the first buyer, you know, brought them in, it was really just, you know, definitely a moment in the trajectory of the business and uh, a day I'll never forget really. Clearly, during those, for those first, the kind of trial period of the 30, 30 source, it must have gone pretty well, I'd imagine. It went pretty well. <laughs> so what was, what was that, did, did Whole Foods come back to you and say, we want to put this in X amount of stores? Like, what was that kind of retail expansion from there? Well, it was, you know, it's funny, it, it, it took a, it, t- it, it does take a while to expand regions in Whole Foods. But, um, but obviously eventually we got there, but, you know, initially like they don't know how these products are going to do. Right. So they order fairly small. It's a new brand. No one's heard of it. Let's just bring in, you know, not a lot. And, um, they sold out in two days and the distributor sold out in two days. And so I just remember just getting frantic calls and frantic orders, like wanting more, more, more. 
and you know we were like last priority at the at the co-manufacturer so you know it's it's this dance this really delicate dance you know make more and more you know please and you know they're ordering and you're trying to deliver them and oh my gosh just crazy it was crazy and your team is small you know really small they were like three of us four of us at the time and uh just trying to keep up with those orders was you know really significant we needed to prove that we could continuously deliver and we did and uh we obviously grew from there yeah because i'd imagine it also takes like a like, like a heavy toll it's a it's a good problem to have but still a problem to have right that there's so much demand for your products on the operations what, talk me to a little bit about how you also thought about like the operations um and actually scaling like that side too when it came to collie power well i mean in the early days it was easy because you know we we didn't you know, we weren't close to hitting our minimum. So in the early days, you know, the more volume, the better. You know, there were times in the business when, certainly not now, now we can keep us up with as much demand as there is. But there was a time in uh, the business when I had, you know, a request for orders from Walmart and request for, for orders from Costco. And I couldn't do both. I just couldn't do both. And so I remember I had to turn Costco down and that was really hard. But, you know, sometimes as an entrepreneur, you know, our, by our very nature, we're yes people. Yes, I can do it. Yes, I can get it there. Yes, it can be done. Um, so, you know, no is not a, a, a popular word in our vocabulary. It certainly wasn't in mine. But you know, I had a reputation to think about. And, you know, the worst thing you can do for your customers is make a promise you can't keep. And so I did tell them no. And, you know, it was really a good decision. And the and I was able, as a result, I was able to service everyone else. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like you say yes. And then on behind the scenes, you're like, okay, now we got to figure it out since that's a yes. Oh, um, I, it's, I, I still do that. <laughs> What was that decision um, partly? Why? Because um, obviously you had to be, you couldn't be, as you were kind of scaling up, I know it's obviously different now when it comes to the business, but back then as you were scaling, you had to pick maybe which retailer to enter and, and kind of focus on one retailer. Why did you, in that example, take, for example, um, Walmart over Costco? Uh, well, uh, a, a couple reasons. And that was really the only time and just a really good example of, you know, a, a finite, a, a binary decision. There, there was really none other, you know, given that they're both so large. So Costco was one region. You just started in one region. It wasn't a national, it wasn't national. Um, and Walmart was national, even though at the time it was only 900 stores today that our, our relationship with, with them is much bigger. But, um, you know, look, my goal, if you go back to my mission, which I always try and do, and really every founder and every company should do. I wanted to make, you know, more nutritious food accessible to all. Well, Walmart was a pretty damn way, good way to do that. And, you know, they've been a great partner for us um, and continue to be. And, you know, I think it was the right decision. Costco, sometimes they bring you in, sometimes not. And to be honest with you, I've really struggled getting back in Costco since then. So, um, 
so but i'm i'm hoping uh i'm hoping now that you know the stars have aligned but yeah that's just you know you just you always have to put your customers first and sometimes putting your customer first is you know making sure that you can keep all the promises that you make at what point did it make sense for you to raise a round of venture capital how how roughly what was roughly like the size of the company and and how many stores were you in when you decided to raise a round from bfg well, it, it was, um, you know, it wasn't that it, it was, a, it, it's easy. How do you know when, when you run out of money or, or, or I mean, <laughs> wasn't, there wasn't, I didn't have to hear like fairy bells ring or anything. Um, and it was, um, you know, technically you should raise it before you run out of money. I probably did it a little bit late, to be honest with you. I self-funded, um, from March, 2016 through, October, 2017, we were going into, that's when we were going into Walmart and I needed, I didn't have enough money to make the product to go into, to sell to Walmart. So I needed money so that I could fulfill those orders. I'd imagine that you probably due to the van had like a suite a, uh, of investors. Why did you land with, um, with BFG? I didn't have a suite of investors. Most people turned me down. No, most people turned me down, uh, to be honest with you. Um, uh, I think, look, you know, women get 2% of female of uh, VC dollars. Uh, I saw it happen a hundred times to me, to other people. So I'm sure that played into it a little bit. I'd like to say we were a new untested product, but we weren't. We were already in market, at least in Whole Foods and some other retailers. We were killing it. We were already going into Walmart. So, you know, it's not like that was a, a, a hope and a dream. That was a reality. And, you know, I think a lot of people thought, you know, oh, you know, cauliflower crust pizza, that's not really a thing. Most people said, most potential investors said, we want to see how you, how you, how you do in Walmart. Which was really interesting to me because I don't, you know, I thought it was supposed to be called venture capital, like, or risk capital. But so a lot of people turned me down. Now, a lot of people that turned me down came back the following year and were basically throwing money at me. But in early on, it was very hard to raise money. When I was reading about your story and, and everything with Cauliflower, that's that's to me what was really impressive because you were one of the fastest growing brands to 100 million in sales, um, and yet you didn't raise that much VC funding. Considering about how much you you accomplished on the sales side, which um, and again, there's no you know one way to skin a cat. There's no like right kind of answer here, but it seems like from a, like kind of like a capital efficiency standpoint, you were doing really well with with Kali Power. We were really capital efficient. We've always been capital efficient. I love that word. I think that's just a great phrase. And I'm very proud of that, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of it stems quite frankly, from very early on, I, I said, you know, my dad left me a little bit of um, money in the form of his house, which he the small house that he he lived in for many years, the only house he'd ever owned. And, um, he, you know, I, I, 
I know, I saw, I lived how hard he worked for that money. Like I, I saw it and I just thought, I better be careful with it. I, that's, that's like blessed money. That is like money dripped in sweat and tears. And I needed to protect it and I needed to make it last as long as I possibly could. And that has probably, you know, been a continuous theme throughout the, you know, building and trajectory of, of cauliflower. Um, and it all started because I thought so highly and I knew how hard my, my dad had worked for that money. During that growth phase, and obviously cauliflower is still growing, but during that, that, that kind of really fast growth, growth stage from going to zero to a hundred million, are, are there some maybe examples that you can pull from when you thought about how you were being capital efficient and whether that's balancing like the profitability and the growth side of the business um, to how you think about maybe like margins or, or, or just whatever kind of comes to mind? You know what? It's hard because at the time we just needed to grow, right? So certainly, um, you know, obviously our goal was always to be profitable, but as you know, that does take a little bit of time. Uh, and a lot of competitors came into the market and we had to, you know, battle them and we had to get another co-man. And there were all these things that we needed to spend that money on that was going to be a long-term investment for the future of the company. So I've always had sort of that long-term view, but, you know, we did, you know, we were, you know, very cautious about, you know, there were some things, you know, we weren't, we weren't slap happy with the money. Sometimes I see these brands and they do these whole, you know, these huge activations or whatever. And we certainly have done our fair of activations, um, but we tried to be really thoughtful and smart around it. Um, we, you know, we, we really, um, you know, obviously we, we, we are a marketing driven company, which is, you know, um, has always been, but, um, you know, we relied very heavily on earned media, which can be much cheaper. Uh, and so, you know, that was one way that we were able to, you know, make the dollars stretch a little bit further. Even our, our headquarters, I didn't I didn't put the headquarters of a company in a very sort of exciting or, or flashy, like, you know, Venice kind of cool, um, you know, showcase with ping pong tables in the in the middle. That would have been great. And I'm sure my team would have loved it. But I just couldn't see spending money on that. I wanted to spend money on the company, on the products and on our people. And that's where that's where I focus the efforts. On the marketing and branding side to Kali Power, because I know that now you're the the chief branding um, and and innovation officer. Um, how how did you think about? Because um, I know that you said there's a ton of competitors kind of entering the market. It became maybe a a pretty exciting, um, attractive, hot space. Um, how do you think about the overall positioning of Kali Power versus some of your competitors? Well, you know, look, I always say that. Uh or people have told me uh, imitation is the biggest, the biggest form of flattery, right? Flattery. And if that's true, I feel very flattered um, because there's a lot of comp competitors that, that, that came into the space. I think, you know, look, we just always played our own game. 
we always played our own game. I didn't look behind me. I, I just kept looking forward. And I think what happened is that a lot of the competitors were so quick to get in, were so, so wanted what Kali, a piece of what Kali Power was building that, you know, and they, they made subpar products. And I think, you know, consumers and retailers really spoke and said, no, we don't want, we don't want that. We want Collie Power. And I think the retailers brought in a lot of those competitors because they thought, oh, great, these people are going to do for, you know, the frozen aisle what Collie Power did, but they didn't. And so, you know, there was a time when they all sort of came to market. There were 50 new SKUs from like 30 different brands. And then, you know, the following year, a lot of them left. And so one of the things that we've always done, we've always looked straight ahead. We don't look at the competition. We play our own game and we make the best damn products that we can make. And I think that, you know, a lot of times, you know, big food as they call it, or some of our larger competitive set, you know, they bet against the, that the, they bet against the consumer in the sense that they don't think that the consumer is going to know any better. At Collie Power, we always bet on the consumer. We absolutely believe that the consumer is going to know better. In fact, we're betting on it. And I think that's what we proved out when all of those, you know, in those couple of years when, you know, the market was just flooded with competitors. No, that's, it's, it's a bet on your quality and and people and and that the consumers will actually be able to tell a difference and maybe read the labels and really understand what type of ingredients are actually in and making sure it's not kind of fluff or um or or filler ingredients exactly exactly that makes sense at what point did you realize hey we have to expand and diversify and expand maybe our our product assortment and which product did you start off with um, it's interesting, you know, I didn't really expand the portfolio until I felt like we had permission to do that from our consumers. And I really felt like our, because our consumers, our consumers are wonderful. They talk to us, they share information with us, they share ideas with us. They talk to us all the time in every form that you could possibly imagine. You know, we listen. And I think that's really what sets Collie Power apart. So, you know, we 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 have, you know, tried a number of different products over the years. Um, you know, some were hits, some were less so. Our our number two product um is our um chicken, which is real chicken coated in cauliflower and then baked and not fried. And that was just a huge hit. And, you know, continues to be for us and is very popular and, you know, grows in popularity every day. Strong, strong product line. And we've certainly innovated from that. So, you know, we started out with two tenders, original and spicy. Then we have a nuggets and then we're introducing a new chicken product at the end of in, in, in fourth quarter of this year or third quarter. And we also recently launched frozen meals, um, pasta meals directly from Italy, which are amazing. So I think you could say the house of Collie Power is primarily built on pizza, obviously pizza. That's what that's what made us famous, chicken and and meals. And that's where you'll see our growth continue to expand. What was the decision making when you were expanding new SKUs in terms of which SKU you actually wanted to land on? Was there 
also uh, customer research since you obviously built your brand up um, through pizza. Um, and if so, what were kind of maybe like tests that you had, that you ran before you actually invested in, into a new SKU? Yeah. So, I mean, look, in the beginning, we didn't have much research. We couldn't afford much research. Uh, now we do. Now we are swimming in research. Lots and lots and lots of research. So that's super helpful and wonderful. And we have all kinds of great people on the team who help us digest that research and tell us what it means and tell us what our consumers are looking for. And that's all great. Um, you know, we tend to go to... to uh, to meaty categories, categories that are like, you know, sizable. Uh, we also look at categories that are ripe for disruption, right? Categories that maybe haven't been touched in, in so long. And I think our chicken is a wonderful example of that. That tends to be where we gravitate. You know, look, I think um, we've also had a lot of products on, end up on the cutting room floor because all of our products have to sort of, you know, meet the 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 trifecta of um, tasting great, having some nutritional advantage, and being convenient. And it's, you know, as I always say, really easy to make something taste great, really easy to make something healthy, really easy to make something quick, really really hard to do all three. And so there's a lot that have left that we've left on the cutting room floor that may have hit one or two of those marks, but not the third. So really now the portfolio is, is, is really where we want it to be. And we've been concentrating on that for the last couple of years now. Yeah, that's a great, um, that is true. Having a great tasting product that actually, you know, provides some nutritional value. Um, and as well, also that, you know, is not too costly too, right. To actually purchase, um, to, uh, to make sure your pricing is right. That, that, that it's, that it's um, affordable. Um, like that is a really kind of hard triangle to, um, um, uh, to balance. And so also to think about it from that sphere, of course it has to taste great. That's, you know, the number one priority. Um, but um, balancing those three things, I think that that is, you know, where the opportunity is in, in, in various categories in CPG, but also at the same time, also what's, what makes it really challenging in terms of true innovation. Yeah. No, well said on all fronts. Agreed. What's kind of the next? Do you think is it expanding into more SKUs and and built and and making more uh, different types? Is it, is it potentially like an M and A or like M and A opportunities? Is there a potential like an IPO opportunity? Like, what do you kind of see in terms of like the future of um, Collie Power in your mind? Well, look, I I, I always say I, I never say never to anything. Um, there, there there are certainly things that I gravitate more toward than others, but you know, certainly never say no to anything. Um, you know, look, I think that really we're just getting started. And, you know, we want to be the number one better for you frozen food company. Full stop. That's what we want to be. And uh, and I we're, I think we are well on our way. And, you know, and there, there's all kinds of things that are represented from that. There's day parts. There's other parts of the grocery store. There's you know, um, uh, geographies, there's all kinds of ways to achieve that. I will say that we're also, um, you mentioned our retail stores, which is about 30,000 now, but also we're in 5,000 uh, restaurants. Uh, our food service business is, um, is, is, is going quite well. And I think there's, there's also opportunity there. So there's a number of different 
growth paths for us to get there, which is great. Uh, but, you know, we're just going to keep focused on making great products for our consumers and and really introduce the products to new consumers, uh, which I personally am very excited about. I think what's also um, really kind of interesting, because as you say, like there's so many brands coming up, but what is really hard about what you do is the fact, I mean, obviously there's many hard parts when it comes to your product, but also the fact that it's frozen and the fact that you actually have like a frozen supply chain. And that is such a... Uh, I would think deter deterrent for entrepreneurs and also a competitive advantage for you all that you've had that figured out at scale um, on the demand side. And I know that there's a lot of kind of competitors now in the category, but I would imagine someone is less likely to start a frozen food company rather than like a shelf stable company, for example. Well, if they were smart, sure, they, they, they absolutely would avoid frozen at all costs. I unfortunately was not that smart. Uh, I like to say ignorance is bliss. Um, you know, to me, it was just like, I wanted to do frozen pizza. So let's do frozen pizza. But, um, you know, and again, I had no money, no real research early on. Um, but I didn't know that frozen was the most competitive space in the grocery store. How would I know that? Of course, it's the most competitive because it's the least amount of space. Um yeah, and I, I totally, I always say I have bar envy because I always see people either at shows or on the street, oh, have a bar, have a bar, have a bag of chips. I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't give away product like that. Or people say, oh, could you serve cauliflower at this event? Sure. Do you have freezers? Do you have an oven? No. Well, then we can't. And so it's like, it, I, I, I absolutely have that envy. Um, it, it is hard. It is hard. But, you know, everything's hard. That's great insight. Great insight. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? The one that has inspired me professionally actually is not too far from here. It's like I almost want to grab it and read from it. It's called Grocery, which I know sounds riveting, but it actually is because, I, you know, I didn't know anything about But it was like a New York Times bestseller. It's not like, oh, Grocery. But um it was written by this guy. Oh, I'm so upset. I don't, I can't recall his name, but um, he worked in a, in a grocery store growing up and he writes about the industry and he has this line in there um, uh, early on in the book where he basically talks about how important food is. And it really is like, you know, it is the great equalizer. Because it's the one thing like air and water we all need. No matter how much money you have or how little money you have, we all need to eat. And the process by how we get our food is pretty remarkable. And if you didn't know it before the pandemic, boy, did you know it after the pandemic. Because all of a sudden, the intricacies and the and the faults that lie within our food system were on the front page of the news, right? The food supply chain, that was news. That was top of the news because nothing was more important. How were people going to eat? How were people going to be locked in their homes and eat? And so I, I, I really, I appreciated that book because it made me realize, wow, 
if I can pull this off, if I can do this, this is going to be something important. This is going to be something meaningful. This is going to help people in some way. I really love that. And I, I'm so appreciative for that book. Again, I just feel like I want to run over and get it because um, it really just had this beautiful way of reminding me of something that was always so obvious. I love that you brought up this book because no one else, we've done 300 episodes of this podcast and I must say, Gail, you are so original. Um, no one else has brought up this book, um, Grocery. So really, really excited. No, to... but it, is a, it was on the New York Times bestseller. I'm serious. I know, it's not I know. like, okay. I believe you. I totally believe you. No, I love it. I love it when when we actually get new new book recommendations. So this is so this is great. This is great. But you don't have to be, let me just say this. You don't have to be in the industry to appreciate it. You just and the thing is we all buy food. We all have a relationship with food. I know you talked a little bit about the pandemic and of course that made us all, you know, realize how much we kind of love food and just love I mean I, I would say appreciate just things in general. Um, during the pandemic, how did you think about cauliflower during, you know, from a sales channel's, sales channel's perspective, since you're in, you know, thousands of stores, how did that, how did the pandemic affect, um, cauliflower? I'd imagine it would be quite drastic, but how did you, um, how did you think through it? Uh, drastic is being kind. It was, it was just horrible. I mean, <laughs> it was like, just because it wasn't just like you were taking the company virtual overnight, which clearly we were just like everybody else, but we were an essential business. Everything that we did just got a thousand times more complicated. Not only could it was excruciatingly hard to get the food from point A to point B, but we couldn't even make the food because people weren't making the food standing more than six feet apart in some cases. So there were challenges everywhere, everywhere. And then there were not enough trucks and not enough drivers. And I mean, I could just, you know, tell you stories. I love when I started, my hair was straight. Let's just say that. So I think, but what it did for, for, for me personally, and I hope for the company, and in, in many ways, I hope for the country, is that it, it really, you know, underscored you know, what a real problem food scarcity and hunger is in this country. So, you know, my my parents were children of the war. They were Holocaust survivors. My dad always said, you know, the cold was horrible. The, the pain, the death, everything was, was horrible around him. But the worst thing was the hunger. The worst thing was the hunger. And it's funny didn't know it at the time, didn't know that it would impact me, but there is very few things that I hate to see more than people who are hungry. And that is why from our very first sale of our very first pizza, we've given a percentage to help build teaching gardens and underserved schools across the country that really, you know, teach kids how to grow vegetables, how to use vegetables, how to eat vegetables, how to how, how important healthier, nutritious food is for you so that you can go out and do what you need to do in the world. And, you know, there was, so that had always been our, our program, except during the pandemic, kids weren't going to school. There were no teaching gardens. So we pivoted 
And we were able to um, give out and support, you know, buy produce from farmers and from local farmers in four different cities and together with the American Heart Association, give out boxes of food during the pandemic um, to over 100,000 families. And, you know, one day for the for the one in L.A., the whole team, practically the whole team came out, you know, all in the height of the pandemic before any vaccines, all wearing the masks and everything. And we just spent, you know, days putting boxes of food in people's trunks. And wow, talk about power. Talk about the power to help people and impact people. And, you know, really how lucky so many of us are to not have to think about where we're going to get our next meal from. And if there was any silver lining to that time in our society and in our country, I hope it's that people realize, you know, the importance of, and the, and, and really that should be a right to food in this country. And, um, you know, if Collie Power can help you know, with that in some tiny, tiny way, um, I'll, I'll consider that a job well done. Yeah, I would 100% consider that um, a win. Gail, what is one piece of advice that you have for, um, for entrepreneurs that are starting or have and, and currently scaling a, a food business? You know, to the people out there who may be executing or, you know, maybe even more so, Mike, to all the people who just have an idea and are wondering, you know, what do I do? I, I would say, you know, and, you know, maybe the pandemic again taught us sort of the fragility of life, but, you know, good ideas are a dime a dozen. What you really need is execution. And I think, you know, many of us, you know, think that there's this magical time to start a business. You know, clearly I waited a long time, um, but maybe I was meant to wait a long time. Um, but there's no right time. There's no wrong time. But there is just this time. And, you know, I, I would ask all those people, like, what are you waiting for? Today's a great day. Today's a great day to start. So, you know, go for it. Bet on yourself. And, you know, don't, don't leave yourself wondering what might have been. Gail, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Mike, thank you so much. I loved it. Um, I think I have a free coupon for your guests. Is that okay? Oh, you do. That is, I that do. is great. That okay. is great. Yeah. So um, if you uh, direct message Kali Power on any of our social channels uh, and use the consumer VC, right, uh, then we'll give you a coupon good for one free product of your choice. So it's like nothing to lose. There we go. There we go. We we love free. We I love, love free, free too. Thank you so there much, you Gail. Thank you. That's so kind of you. Thanks for the offer. Thank you so much. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Gail. Gail, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, I highly recommend subscribing to our newsletter at theconsumerbc.com where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. If you're listening to this on YouTube, also please click the subscribe button. Or if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also subscribe there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.